On May 2, 1986, not long before he was to leave for Rome, Aldergame has faced the biggest crisis yet in his short career as a spy. He had to take a polygraph, a lie detector test. He was terrified at the prospect. When he had learned a few weeks earlier that he was facing the test, he had passed a note to the KGB, urgently asking for advice on how to handle it. There had to be a way, he thought. Some combination of tranquilizers, clenching your toes when asked your name to even out the stressfulness of your responses, maybe visualizing an ocean or a clear blue sky. Ames received the note back shortly before the test. It said, Get a good night's sleep, and rest, and go into the test rested and relaxed. Be nice to the polygraph examiner, develop a rapport, and be cooperative, and try to maintain your calm. Though disappointed at its simplicity, he took the advice all the same. I did reflect on the fact that the KGB had invested a tremendous amount of time and effort and work in the polygraph, even though they didn't believe in it the way the agency does, he said. He also thought, there probably isn't anyone that the KGB wants to help pass the polygraph more than myself. The polygraph examiner was extremely chummy as he strapped Ames into the polygraph. Ames knew what the key questions would be. They were always the same. Have you divulged any classified information to any unauthorized person? Have you had any unauthorized contact with foreigners? Have you gone to work for the other side? Have you been pitched, that is, approached, by a foreign intelligence service? As Ames answered the last question, the needle quivered. The examiner told Ames that his responses indicated deception, and he asked about his reaction. Well, Ames replied, of course, all of us in the Soviet division are sensitive to that question. We know the Soviets are out there, and we worry about that. I myself have pitched to the KGB's people in Washington. And the thing is, I spent some time in 1985 with that Soviet defector, Yuchenko. And I think I might be known to the Soviets as a result. And, you know, I'm going to Rome in July, and I have some concerns that I might be pitched there. Thank God, he thought, I'm telling the truth. He had not been approached by the KGB. It was the other way around. I was totally relieved, Ames remembered. The dreaded lie detector was a farce. The machine said he had been telling the truth when he had been lying, and said he had been lying when he had been telling the truth. And the man controlling it was not much better as a judge of character. The polygraph operator deemed Ames forthcoming in all respects, and he called Ames' responses bright and direct. Thanks to the helpful advice from Moscow, the incompetence of the polygraph operator, and the dubious value of the lie detector, Alder Games had kept his secret. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influence the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome 
to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode 15, The Polygraph Test. What exactly is this infamous lie detector test? And what is its history? Why is it used by companies and intelligence agencies for employment screening, yet test findings are not admissible in a court of law? Even after years of study, and in some cases, discrediting of the practice, it still plays a major role in public perceptions. Why is that? After the break, we will read The Pulse of History, dig through the deception, and detect the truth behind the polygraph. Howdy, theoriologists. Let's talk polygraphy. No, not the fancy writing thing. That's calligraphy. And not multiple spouses. That's polygamy. Polygraphy. As in the polygraph. The lie detector test. That thing. Now, y'all heard the introduction, and that's from uh, a book that was uh, co-authored by uh, uh, Tim Weiner. I'm sorry, Tim Wellner. David Johnston, and Neil Lewis. The book was titled Betrayal, the Story of Aldrich Ames, an American Spy. It recounts Ames' uh, first polygraph screening uh, after he began spying for the Russians. The polygraph has had a long and tenuous history rooted in efforts really to advance interrogation techniques. Currently, it's dismissed by scientists and it's inadmissible in court. Yet the polygraph examination is still used by federal agencies, businesses, investigators, and police forces. The lie detector is often used within the realms of conspiracy theory and alternative beliefs as an offering of proof on the basis of honesty and integrity of those making extraordinary claims. But do we trust it? Do we really care about the outcome of the polygraph tests given the controversy surrounding their validity. The truth is, yes, we do. We want to put stock in these tests, and we want to have proof put before us. So let's dive into this. Let's look at the background. Now, right off the front, I'm going to tell you this is, as usual, a high-level 10,000-foot review. So let's define it, right? A polygraph, which is popularly popularly referred to as the lie detector test. Well, it's it's a device or a procedure that measures and records several physiological indicators, usually such as blood pressure, pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity while a person is asked and answers a series of questions. You know, the belief underpinning the use of the polygraph is that deceptive answers will produce physiological responses that can be differentiated from those associated with non-deceptive answers. 
However, uh, there are really no specific physiological reactions that are associated with lying, which makes it difficult to identify these factors and, and separate lies from truths. Polygraph examiners also prefer to use their own individual scoring methods as opposed to computerized techniques, as they may more easily defend their own evaluations. And that, you know, there you go. That's pretty much the, uh, the, the wiki definition. Well, let's look at the history. The history of the polygraph is that it was invented in 1921 by John Larson, who was a medical student at, at uh, UC Berkeley and a police officer of the Berkeley Police Department in Berkeley, California. There was further work on the device uh, done by a gentleman named uh, Leonard Keeler. And as Larson's protege, Keeler had updated that device by making it more portable. And uh, he added things such as the galvanic skin response uh, in 1939. His device was then purchased by the FBI and served as the prototype for the modern polygraph. There's some history there too, and John Larson built his work off of uh, many predecessors that had been doing this for the previous several decades. Uh, but for the purposes of the history and the device that we know today, you know, it comes from them. Now, right off the bat, there are some alternatives to it. Uh, there is voice stress analysis as a technique which uses... Uh, uh, various computer softwares to analyze uh, voice patterns and apparently identify stress levels, uh, patterns, cadence, things of that nature. There's also the functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. Now this is from the uh, Columbia Science and Technology Law Review. Functional magnetic resonance imaging is a brain imaging technique developed in 1990s based on blood oxygenation levels in the brain. The underlying property upon which fMRI relies is hemoglobin's tendency to exhibit different magnetic properties when oxygenated than when deoxygenated. By inducing a strong magnetic field on the subject and observing how the hemoglobin responds to the field, neurologists can determine which parts of the brain are experiencing greater blood flow during certain exercises. fMRI enables neurologists to link areas of the brain with certain activities or emotions. Accordingly, develop, development of fMRI has led to a greater understanding of psychological disorders. However, the uh, article goes on to state, fMRI faces criticism regarding its underlying techniques and the ethics of admitting evidence that the fMRI generates. Okay, so let's look at uses. Well, I thought about just giving a bullet point use uh, list, but, but this is from a poly polygraph provider company called Area 51 Polygraph. And, and their website states this, Modern Polygraph science and methodology is actually a psychophysiological detection of deception, PDD, and, it, uh, and it's an examination used to determine a professional opinion regarding truth or deception. The utility of a professional examination often yields the rest of the story, 
quote-unquote admissions or new information that may support an ongoing investigation uh, and help that investigation confirm new allegations or support conspiracy issues. They go on to state, polygraph examiners help verify the truth of a specific statement in criminal and civil cases, employee theft, domestic infidelity, or private issues, government national security scopes even, uh, attorney-client requested exams, law enforcement investigations, internal affairs, and some pre-employment screenings in accordance with federal and state board licensure. The same questions, uh, question or questions is asked more than once in seemingly random order. The examiner looks for demonstrative and consistent reactions to the same questions. The subject will be allowed to expand or explain any unusual response during the post-test interview phase. So there you go. There's a very broad use for the polygraph. And that's a rough, uh, simple description of how it's administered. And that seemed to be pretty consistent across the board. Um, but but knowing its uses and, and knowing its background, what's the legal and the scientific view? Well, there are doubts about uh, the polygraph test. And, and those doubts grew in the scientific community until the National Research Council which is an organization of scientists, conducted a systematic evaluation and concluded that the test is lacking in scientific validity. Now, we won't go into what that means or what their basis is, uh, aside from that influenced future decisions, such that in 1998, the U.S. Supreme Court acted to restrict their use in legal proceedings. In particular, defense attorneys can no longer use evidence that their client passed a polygraph test as establishing innocence of a crime. Now, even as the polygraph test is discredited in legal proceedings, its use uh, also has declined in other settings, and most employers are legally barred from using it as a technique to recruit honest employees. The government, though, is one exception. But understanding that, how do we look at the polygraph in, in the context of conspiracy theory and alternative beliefs that we discuss on this show? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to read you uh, a section from the Daily Star, right? This article, the headline reads, I saw a UFO. Buzz Aldrin passes lie detector test revealing truth about aliens. Okay, so the story claims that statements made by Aldrin were evaluated by the Institute of Bioacoustic Biology using quote-unquote complex computer analysis of the astronauts' voice patterns. They claim that the tests reveal Aldrin is sure he saw a UFO, even though his logical mind cannot explain it. Now, the article is linked in the show notes below, and y'all can see that. Uh, I've also linked a, a Washington Post article which counters the claim based on Buzz Aldrin's own denial of the statements. Now, while this is not a use of the polygraph machine that we're discussing, the methodology of recognizing deception and sincerity of the test subject is similar. In this context, the practice of 
lie detecting is being utilized to support the claim that NASA has been covering up evidence of alien life and UFO activity. So there you go. And, and when we talk about proponents and resources, you know, for this field, I mean, let's look at it. I, you know, again, I referenced an organiz a polygraph uh, organization called Area 51 Polygraph. Now, so let's look at from their, their website and it, just, just a, a few, just a short description here. They say polygraph examiners are employed as career professionals by most federal law enforcement agencies, U.S. intelligence services, Texas Rangers, major police departments, and in private practice. They claim that all examiners commissioned by Area 51 Polygraph are retired federal agents with extensive real-world experience in counterintelligence, special operations, and covert compartmentalized government programs that deal with national security issues. They say... We use modern polygraph technology to confirm individual experiences about paranormal events, near-death experiences, alien abductions, conspiracy theories, and UFO encounters. Individuals that have secret information or those that have personally experienced these types of events should contact Area 51 Polygraph to confirm their story. Now, there are other polygraph associations throughout the world. I mean, there's a polygraph association I found, it seemed, in every state in the U.S., and also just a list, list after list, of these associations throughout the world. And they provide training, certifications, and location resources. Um, the uh, As an example, the American Polygraph Association, which was established in 1966, uh, was established on the basis of promoting the practice and the profession. Now, in stark contrast, the antipolygraph.org site seeks complete abolishment of polygraph testing from the workplace in the U.S. And their website is, is the complete antithesis to the APA, citing studies and litigation against the practice. Now, here's a a quick list of some of the points that they make and the claims that they make in contracts to the APA. And they claim that the consensus view among scientists is that the polygraph testing has no scientific basis. The FBI considers the creator of the lie detector test to be a phony and a crackpot. Uh, I didn't hadn't found that in, in previous uh, readings and research, but you know, that's their claim. The, they also say that the man who started the CIA's polygraph program thought that plants can read human thoughts. They say that the foremost polygraph advocate in academia was discredited, uh, discredited by a federal judge. And uh, a prominent past president of the APA is a phony PhD. And this premier polygraph organization doesn't consider it an ethics problem. I mean, that, those are just some of the claims, uh, although while they seem to be more character assassination than attack on the field itself, there are a uh, slew of studies and references that uh, I found that call into question the validity of the polygraph test. Um, I've, linked, I've linked those in the show notes, 
and they go on and on. And, and largely it's, it's not just, it's not really a discrediting. It's, it's the fact that they haven't been able to verify a much greater accuracy than say the toss of a coin. The APA claims, I think a 90% accuracy on the polygraph while other studies said that, Hey, it's actually more like 65%, uh, accuracy, which of course isn't much better than a 50, 50 chance. So the jury's really kind of, kind of still out. But now that we've kind of covered, Oh, (laughs) high level, um, on the background and, and of the polygraph and the polygraph test, as well as some of these newer polygraphs, well, let's, let's dive into the theoryology. Let's talk about why it's of interest anyway. Well, you know, as usual, the theoryology behind our polygraph fascination, it wasn't obvious. I mean, it, at least not to me. <laughs> I knew that my initial ideas were not the full answer. I've learned that in the course of doing these shows, but I chased it anyway. I mean, just to see where the research led. Uh, of course, the obvious direction to take when researching the zeitgeist impact of a lie detector test is to look into the psychology of lying. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? It has to have something to do with the fear of being caught lying. We've all told those little white lies. There's an entire psychology behind the act of lying and even the role it plays in society, family units, relationships. It it really was a fascinating rabbit hole of research and you should check it out. Here's the problem. Polygraph tests are not compulsory, at least not in the context that we're talking about. They're elective, with the exception of uh, national uh, or national security or federal agencies in dealing with, with employment, specific employment scenarios. The, you don't have to take one. Uh, in fact, in the context of our discussion, they're often requested and commissioned by individuals, groups, researchers, and investigators who want to test, uh, want the test to verify something. And as we have said, in the context of conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, and unexplained phenomena, these tests uh, are used to provide quantitative, reviewable evidence of the claims made. These folks already know what they believe. They know what they saw, experienced, believe, or uncovered. They believe they are truthful. And the test will simply verify that. So why take it? You know, and and more importantly, why do we still let it have any weight in our opinion of the claim or testimony, given all the shade cast around the polygraph test? Well, the answer revealed itself, and and it's really quite simple. At least in this perspective, it's not that lying plays a role in social structures or that we're afraid of getting caught in a lie. No, the answer lies in a need we have in order to function within a social group. The answer is validation, specifically the therapeutic impact of validating uh, and validation following psychological trauma. All right, so. Stay with me. Let's look at this concept. I mean, why does this fascinate us? Well, validation. Validation is one way that we communicate acceptance of ourselves and others. Validation doesn't mean agreeing 
for approving. You know, when your best friend or a family member makes a decision that you really don't think is smart, validation is a way of supporting them and strengthening the relationship while maintaining a different opinion. So validation is a way of communicating that the relationship is important and solid even when you disagree on issues. I mean, it sounds nice, right? Validation is the recognition and acceptance of another person's thoughts, feelings, sensations, and behaviors as understandable. Self-validation is the recognition and acceptance of your own thoughts, feelings, sensations, and behaviors as being understandable. So that's validation. Um, it feels good, but is it just is it just about feeling good? I mean, why do we seek validation? Well, on a day-to-day basis, we seek validation in pursuit of esteem and belonging. And that's defined in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there's no need to dive into that uh, other than to, uh, to understand that it's a psychological theory attempting to explain human motivation. Uh, I've linked it in the show notes if you really want to think way too hard. Um, but the, the best example is, is the like button on Facebook. I mean, that screams validation, right? We share photos and update status in the hopes of getting approved by our Facebook friends. When the you look gorgeous comments and hearts flow in, uh, we feel happy, right? As long as you don't consider Facebook as an extension of your identity and get obsessed uh, forcing people to like your updates, you're doing fine. It's good. It's healthy. But but we aren't talking about day-to-day validation, you know? We're talking about the sort of validation that comes from usually traumatic experiences. Many people face traumatic events in adult life, and be it a serious car accident, combat, rape, a natural disaster, the loss of a child. You know, people are, are confronted with these horrific events that that threaten death or serious injury to themselves or someone else, or, or it involves the traumatic loss of a friend or a loved one. And this is from uh, Dr. Uh, Suzanne Phillips in her blog post on psychcentral.com. So um, she says this rather well, that, that while such trauma is in itself physically and emotionally assaultive, trauma theorist Robert uh, Stolero proposes that beyond the actual event, it is the emotions suffered after the event that become the unbearable emotional pain of trauma. Difficult to articulate and unrecognized by many, the emotional aftermath of adult trauma often goes unvalidated and unhealed. Um, see, Stolero uh, drew upon his the traumatic loss of his wife at a young age, reporting that in this unreal time that stretches slowly after a trauma, there is a, there's an excruciating sense of being outside normal life, along with feelings that no one else can understand. The validation of the emotion, of emotions experienced in the aftermath of adult trauma is important and applicable to any adult who has faced an unspeakable event. They are conceptualized in the following way. Now, we're going to get into this in detail because it's it's necessary to understand this, right? But this this validation in trauma um, is is 
conceptualized, in, and he goes into several categories, and one is the con confrontation of our necessary denial, right? In order to live without excessive anxiety, we all maintain a necessary denial that bad things won't happen. Without this denial, we could be too frightened to, to do anything. I mean, put our kids on the bus to school or leave the house, right? And trauma confronts this denial, that that sense that um, that we're safe or that our children are safe or that life is good and predictable, right? Trauma shatters this absolutism of, of safety. Um, and those who have suffered have found that life is dangerous, right? Unpredictable and sometimes deadly. Uh, the article quotes that uh, one mother that said, why shouldn't I be terrified of my daughters going away to school? If her father can be killed by a plane crash through the 90th floor of the World Trade Center, anything can happen. Now, no doubt 9-11 was a traumatic event, and that could change your, your confidence in anything. With, with time and with validation, many who have suffered still feel that life was and can be dangerous, but it can be good and healing is possible. A additionally, Let's look at the loss of temporality. Now, Stolaro underscores that in the aftermath of trauma, we lose this seamless experience of past, present, and future, right? This, this continuity of time. There's a sense of being entrapped in the traumatic moment. The past becomes meaningless. The future seems impossible. And our life collapses into the day we lost uh, our son or everything uh, was before or after your, this child dies, right? Lifting the shame of being stuck in time by feeling understood, again, feeling validated, starts to open time again. In small steps, those memories begin to foster coping in future dreams of becoming memorials, not reasons to forget. There's also the loss of one's sense of being um, that this unconscious effect of trauma Stolaro captures the feeling of, of losing one sense of being. He reminds us that without being able to put words to the impact of trauma, we lose the attunement of others uh, and the sense of being in the world, right? And being attached to the world, this need for this relational home and someone to get it, to get it, right? To help us know we are not alone. Now, I think you're starting to sense some of the parallels there between these what we would consider normal, maybe not normal, but but traumas for mainstream events, traumatic events, to those uh, that uh, are experienced by uh, uh, victims of, of conspiracy theory, right, or, or unnatural events as well. Um, it also is, is this face-to-face -face with death, uh, Adult trauma too often brings us face-to-face -face with death in a way that we cannot shake. Stolaro describes that this being toward death can create significant anxiety, even numbness, often with a withdrawal from what was once important, work, future plans. The integration of the traumatic confrontation with mortality comes with connection to others, right? It is in this... Uh, vitality of our relationships with others who have suffered and those whom we love that we can find each day of life worth living. 
So validation in this article, according to this this uh, you know this researcher Stolaro, is crucial in maintaining this connectedness and moving forward. So so social validation. I mean, it's good for trauma, right? But how does that apply to the topics of conspiracy theory and the like? Well, real quickly, let's go through some examples on how this might relate. You know, and I thought of three broad categories. Let's look at the cover-up, okay? If you firmly believe that a truth has been covered up, perhaps an assassination, let's look at JFK um, then or, or the moon landing. Um, if you know that the reality on this is is far different from the the truth that's put out there for public consumption, well, this can be a traumatic event because your trust in your leadership, right, our governmental structure, our societal structure as a whole starts to break down because you can't uh, trust what's real. Uh, anymore, the history books are lying. The government is lying. Um, you know, organ these organizations are lying. Society is lying, if only to itself. Uh, that can be traumatic um, psychologically, and you can be detached if you don't have that validation that others around you understand and understand your perspective. Let's look at another example. How about alien abduction? Right. Abductees are extremely traumatized. We see it time and time again. In fact, we talked about it, you know, in, in a recent episode. An alien abductee is extremely traumatized by what they believe has happened to them. And that is a scenario in which you might believe that no one else could possibly understand and no one else, or at least very few, might ever experience. Uh, and there's all sorts of questions to go in your head. Absolutely, that's a psychological trauma. Let's look at another example, the whistleblower, right? The, guy, the, the whistleblower that came, that he's, he's come from big oil that knows that they are covering up that uh, uh, the advancements in alternative energies. Um, there's a real sense of risk when you're a whistleblower. Uh, coming out, you know, possible threats, everything from just the danger of your career um, and, and, and that financial well-being, right? All the way to, hey, my life is in danger because I'm disclosing this. Uh, so, so these examples, and, and of course, I just winged examples there, but, but you could take specific uh, thoughts and, and, and examples and theories out there and understand that from the perspective of, of true believers, that they are traumatic events because they stand out. I mean, it's in the definition of a conspiracy theory. These are things that are not accepted as mainstream. You know, they're dismissed as pseudosciences. They're dismissed as, as crazy, wide-eyed theories um, by, by people that just don't want to accept reality. Well, if you hear that enough, it can be very traumatic. You can start to feel dissociated from society. And that's where this validation comes into play. Because, because we have that sense, we have things that we believe 
Um, and we want people to support that. We need validation from the smallest events in our life to the big things that we believe. And additionally, because of that, societally, we want to be able to offer that. We want that validation. Well, that's where the polygraph test comes in. It gives us something tangible, something quantifiable, something that we can say, oh yeah, I see this and this validates you and I accept this validation. I accept this information to show that, yeah, you know, you're truthful, you're honest, you're sincere. Uh, so we're interested in that. And that's part of the reason that we've kept the polygraph alive in the context of, of, of our discussions and our topics of interest. Okay, so that was that dive into uh, validation. And, and it's, that's probably just scratching the surface. But, but let's put this through the endurance test. Let's ask our questions. Okay, first, how long has this perception been around? Well, the polygraph has been around for close to 100 years. Uh, and actually, the techniques have been around over 100 years, right? These techniques that don't involve physical torture in attempting to identify a lie versus the truth have been pursued since the late 1800s. Um, and second, has it been a large influence in popular culture and media? Oh, well, sure, yes. In some cases, perhaps more indirectly. But the lie detector test is almost a trope in movies and in media. Um, you know, let, a good example is the latest Supreme Court nominee, uh, Brent Kavanaugh. Uh, he had to face serious accusations from a woman claiming sexual assault. And to bolster her claims, her legal team commissioned a polygraph test. You know, however you accepted that or, or what you did with that information, uh, the polygraph test was out there to, to, to put out there to sway public perception. Well, is it still relevant today? Well, the fact that it's still being used by federal agencies and legal teams, I think, is proof that it's still relevant. Absolutely. And finally, will it continue to capture public imagination going forward? Uh, yes. I mean, the, the technology is only making this field of study and interrogation more interesting. Advancements such as that fMRI and computer analysis of voice patterns indicates that lie detection methodologies will only evolve and advance. Um, so, you know, with that, with that in mind, I don't know how... How can we wrap this up? I mean, the truth is that we could go on and on about this topic because, you know, we barely scratched the surface with all the interesting aspects of uh, polygraphy. I, I skimmed over the history and, and I only highlighted the uses, not to mention the fact that there are a myriad of interesting cases involving lie detector test results. Um, and additionally, we didn't even delve into the psychology of lying. Yeah, you know, the truth is that lies play an active role in our social interactions, and it, it's really interesting. I just, I just felt it wasn't the crux of the issue, because again, we're not talking about uh, compulsory testing. Um, you know, I gave you the cliff note versions for a reason, right? First, I really wanted to focus on the discussion of validation. It's fascinating, and, and while it isn't the only reason we find the polygraph so interesting. It's definitely a big factor. Second, many of the topics we've dis 
we'll discuss in probably future episodes will include polygraph test results within the, their history. And, you know, we can learn more then. I mean, frankly, I, I don't know what to think about this field. I mean, much of my research turned up discussions about why polygraphs do or do not work. I mean, it's clear, clear that the jury is still out. But again, in our discussion, we're less interested in why um, it may or may not work, but rather why we are so fascinated by the test, uh, why it holds our interest, why we want to see it in movies and court cases, why we uh, uh, give validity to a, a, a polygraph test. Um, I mean, it's definitely an interesting premise that we can fine-tune our understanding of deception to the point of removing doubt. But, on the other hand, it, is that even really possible, given that there seems to always be a subjective aspect to the testing, namely that of the tester? No matter how detached or objective of a test proctor that may be in the situation, uh, when we discuss conspiracy theory and the like, most people fall on one side of the aisle or the other. Right. Regardless, maybe the polygraph isn't the correct tool for our topics of interest. And the alien abductee believes what happened to them to be real. If the test found them them anxious, well, their anxiety is coming from doubt about others believing, not about their truthfulness. The conspiracy theorist may be judged to be deceptive because they don't trust those involved, not because they're lying. Uh, and and maybe maybe the polygraph needs to to stay put in the world of criminal investigations and, and interrogation. And we need to stop relying on it as a truth detector in the line of of conspiracy and, and the paranormal and the supernatural of course you know that means we'd have to go back to trusting people to be honest but <laughs> i mean don't take my word for it okay that's all for today thanks so much for joining me as always if you like what you hear go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion connect with me via email contact at conspiracytheoriology.com I'd love to hear from y'all. Join the Facebook group or find me on Twitter at TheoriologyPod or just recommend the show to others. I mean, there's no higher compliment than to know that you shared the show with others. All the info can be found at the show website, ConspiracyTheoriology.com, including how to support the podcast on the new Patreon page. Music is by Adam Henry Garcia. And if you'd like to hear more, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. All right, I'll see you again in two weeks when we will tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.